This episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Amazon Studios' Beautiful Boy, coming to theaters this fall. Based on the acclaimed memoirs of father and son David and Nick Sheff, Beautiful Boy chronicles the heartbreaking and inspiring experience of addiction, relapse, and recovery. Rolling Stone calls it an emotional powerhouse, too powerful to resist, impossible to forget. Starring Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet, Beautiful Boy is now playing in select theaters and opens nationwide November 9th. Rated R. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, coming to you from Ann Thompson's office in Los Angeles. And it's nice to actually sit across from you and have a conversation face to face. We've got the whole IndieWire team here because we had this event last night, the IndieWire Honors, um, and it was a group effort, and we put a lot of work into it. And so our social editor came out, and our managing editor came out, and we had a, a whole uh, team represented. Tambeo Benson, who's joined our team, has now moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, we, we kind of filled up the bar even before it got really full with IndieWire people, which was nice to see because it really was uh, a nice opportunity to kind of feel like there was uh, something specific about our brand we were celebrating the kind of people that we had who came out were a lot of them were people we've covered for a number of years at different stages of their careers like Ryan Coogler Carrie who mentioned Sukanaya. that they both did yeah and, and even you know Charlize Theron or uh, Natalie Portman I mean the the kinds of projects these people associate with were very much kind of in a world that feels familiar to us and a lot of times you lose track of that in the kind of mayhem of award season so it was very kind of comforting to just kind of hang out with all these folks and throw a little party in the middle of the chaos of award season and have our own kind of say in it but it was a part of award season I mean, it was a legitimate there were academy event. members there there were there were a lot of people from the uh community that we're all part of and that's what felt sort of cool and organic about it and everybody had a very good time and i can say for myself i don't know about you eric i maybe had too good a time well i was really glad that we had mezcal at the bar that was a special request by our vanguard winner alfonso cuaron who even mentioned it in his speech and uh, it was a very popular beverage over the course of the evening. So he met Natalie for the first time? He met, well, uh, he met Natalie, uh, Ryan Coogler met Natalie. Tell him what happened when he met Ryan Coogler. There was, uh, there was a moment that went viral online where Coogler, uh, well, Coogler said in his speech that he can't, couldn't wait to, to just sort of fangirl all over Quaron. And then, lo and behold, at the foot of the stage, they kind of met, and Quaron was just astonished that Cougar was only 32, and I don't blame him. I mean, what's so fascinating about seeing Ryan Coogler reemerge, perhaps somewhat reluctantly because he doesn't love this stuff, in award season to promote Black Panther is just thinking about, yeah, it, you know, it is kind of insane that he has accomplished the kind of scale of projects and influence that he has at this point in time and still seems so down to earth. I remember talking to him for, for Fruitvale Station, and he was a guy who, you know, a writing teacher discovered him and, and told him what a good writer he was and what a good storyteller he was, and he ended up going to USC. And there was a period of time there where going to Cannes with Fruitvale Station was the first time he'd ever been out of this country. And there was a period of time where... Um, going to Africa and the researching of Black Panther was the first time he'd ever gone to Africa. And he, he's very, um, you're right, he's very grounded and sane about what it takes to tell the stories that he cares about. And 
under insane pressure with a $200 million budget at Marvel, he actually pulled out one of the best movies they've ever made and one of the best movies of the year, which is actually a strong Oscar contender, more than you would think. I mean, we have to look at two different things here. One is what Black Panther is, and one is what Black Panther is in the context. Well, it's not going to be the thing you guys vote for at the New York Film Critics. Yeah, and and it it is, I don't think, a masterpiece per se, just because, say, it's the best Marvel movie. But in the context of a Marvel movie, it is incredibly impressive, and if that is something that should be as much a part of the conversation as other sorts of filmmaking, then it is, you know, sort of the paragon of the form now. But in practical Oscar terms, there's good editing. <laughs> Reality check. There's production design. A lot of it works Which is extraordinary. Well. Hannah Beachler creating Wakanda on a very deep, well-researched, creative uh, innovative level costume design Ruth Carter who's been nominated twice before um, and so she's in the zone already which is a thing that's an easy film and then you have Rachel Morrison cinematographer first woman cinematographer to be nominated for Mudbound who worked on Fruitvale Station mm-hmm. and um, and he is this is his third movie yeah, which that's is so insane thing. Creed he, he did Creed with Maurice Alberti because she was uh, Rachel Morrison happened to be pregnant right uh, at the yeah, time. and he is, and he is now probably one of the most influential people in his particular line of work. I mean, he's already producing the Creed sequel that's coming out. He's producing a new version of Space Jam, and is now going to direct a sequel to the highest-grossing, you know, movie with uh, African American black characters in it ever. And so, the kind of influence he's achieved. I mean, people talk about how Ava DuVernay really did a good job of marketing herself as sort of this. This groundbreaking sort of sort of woman of color who was really sort of affecting change in the business, and Kugler is part of that narrative too, but has not been necessarily awarded. In he's the not same a way. self-promotional cat, as you as you said. He just isn't. Um, he's he, he's remarkably uh, low key. And, and they're going to need him out there because he is good at the mic. He is charming. He is very well spoken. So they're going to need him around if he's going to get a best director. No, they're they're working it. They've got Cynthia Schwartz and strategy PR on the case, and uh, they certainly uh, know what they're doing. Uh, the other movie that got an award last night, of course, was uh, Alfonso Cuaron and Roma. Um, so that is also funny about seeing those two meet for the first time, because they're competitors. <laughs> indeed, and they were happy to meet each other. Um, I would say uh, the question with Roma, we uh, had a big breaking story, which we were all expecting. Uh, we were just waiting for the shoe to drop. The question of, of how they were going to release Roma has been speculated about and of course people were talking to theater owners about what they were going to do and Netflix has been historically day and date only they have never opened a movie before it hits the platform their goal is to please their customers their subscribers and in this case because there was so much pressure applied by Quaron, which he admits um, and the people, some of the people working on the film side inside Netflix who want this movie to be a real Oscar contender uh, they're opening it on November 21st in two theaters, landmark theaters in New York and L.A. It was only a matter of time when you really look at what's happened here. It's just about what were the right conditions that had to take place for Netflix to basically just 
give up and allow this to happen. And, it's you know, an experiment, it's, though. But they're doing it with, with Buster Scruggs, too, and that's not going to be an Oscar play at all. No, so. they're doing it because they have to be fair to the filmmakers. They can't just favor one over the other. The argument I would make is that they're doing this because of Roma, Roma but they're bringing the other ones along because they have to be fair to the filmmakers. Well, But, I mean, but they're it, not opening ahead of the uh, day-and-date release. I think it's, it's, a, it's the right move because Roma obviously needs to be experienced in theaters, and a big part of the comment kind of conversation around this movie being appreciated is going to come from that release and then once that conversation happens it lands on Netflix and it's everywhere. So. But here's the interesting question. I remember back I'm so old that I remember back to the days uh, when uh, box office reporting was only in the trades and it was not a consumer story. It wasn't something it's hard to believe but it really wasn't covered uh, outside of the trades. So you just didn't have to fret about everybody kind of talking about what won the weekend. That's right. It wasn't a, as much of a thing. Um, and in New York, if you were at the Cinema 2 and lines were in a, going around the block, that kind of visual, that those kinds of word of mouth building uh, would really make a difference. And then you would have a perception of, of a hit movie. Of course, you would, from the trades, know what, what the box office was inside the industry. Now, I find it's so fascinating they're not going to be reporting the numbers yeah, on this and yeah. whatever success Roma actually has will be hidden from this kind of uh, consumer reporting but on some level and trade reporting you know the the currency that a movie has now can be judged in other ways beyond its box office anyway the kind of social media footprint and the the way in which it, it you know people believe in a movie and to to a certain degree may matter almost as much as how much people are watching it i mean once it's on netflix anybody can watch it it's a totally different kind of context for measuring the impact this movie can have than buying a ticket. Take 22 July, for example. In that case, the Paul Greengrass movie, apparently it did very, very well on Netflix, partly because the theatrical fueled the word of mouth and the profile of the movie. And in his case, he really wanted people all over the world to have access to this movie. He wanted to change people's minds about what the rise of nationalism and the reaction to nationalism can be. Uh, But in the case of Roma, I do think that that kind of word of mouth of success helps to build an Oscar campaign. That's the thing that's missing. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's hard to see. I mean, Roma is, is uh, I think, still a hard movie to explain to people and to sell to people, and it only will be a phenomenon theatrically, probably, because in, the place, in a lot of places where it's going to play, like New York... People will go see an Alfonso Cuaron movie, and that will drive up an awareness of this movie that will then fuel its Netflix. Like people are, I would say, would probably be less likely to watch Roma than they would 22 July. So they're going to look the people at Netflix. You are absolutely right. The people at Netflix are going to look at those numbers, and that's what's going to determine whether or not they follow this kind of strategy in the future. With Martin Scorsese is the Irishman, which Paul Schrader was saying is only going to get two weeks. Well, maybe it'll get more. These are extended runs, these runs. If the Investigative journalist Paul Schrader is dropping some <laughs> excuses this in week. In success, there's, there's, there's a possibility that these movies... Apparently, Marowitz stories ran for six weeks in New York, which I... Right. Well, Oakjaw know, got some good theatrical it had a second. Too. It had a yeah. second run, and they might bring Paul Greengrass's movie back, too. I mean, one of the things this makes me think about is... In the future, as, as our consumer habits, consuming, you know, the way we consume media changes, 
the theatrical experience just has a different kind of identity in the market. Ultimately, it may have less to do with, you know, your box office means X, Y, Z, and more about, you know, this is one platform that will affect the other platforms as part of this larger business model. I agree. And then the other thing, is, of course, is that they have to use the independent theater chains, not the major theater chains that insist on these uh, windows, these 90-day exclusive windows. So I find that interesting. Why can't more distributors use the independent tier of exhibitors for their uh, releases and, you know, mess up, mess up the windows. In any case, Quaron's obviously a front or a, a leading candidate in for several categories. You know, this movie well, will get he, nominated. He will, director is his to lose, I think. Which sure. means he's following the footsteps of another three Amigos member who's a, who, who won two Oscars in a row. So that well, he's that he's part of. I I believe that the Guillermo del Toro, um, Alejandro Gonzalez, Iñárritu, uh, Alfonso Cuarón trio, you know, f- fuel each other uh, creatively and competitively in a good way, a wonderful way. And then, of course, you can't forget Yelita Aparicio, who it's funny. I started following her on Instagram. She was like all over the map and going to these different places and promoting the film, while Cuarón seemed to be in Europe and other places he like lives that. in Italy and then now he's back on the scene and she's back in Mexico so they really have had this meticulous strategy of getting in front getting different kinds of people in front of the movie at different points in time but it seems like she's a lock for best actress which is crazy when you think about the fact that she never acted before but it's I agree quite a that she is I agree that she is it's, and it's quite a field though it is yeah. all right so who have we got you did a story today um, about Rosamund Pike, who, of course, was nominated for Gone Girl, who is an amazing British actress who's playing an American character, Marie Colvin, in A Private War, which I finally caught up with. And you think she's got a strong uh, bid. for? I mean, I think it's an amazing performance, but why do you think she's going to get in? Well, I think the... You know whether or not she cracks this field, which is incredibly competitive, it's a little hard to assess because it's being released by a relatively new company. The movie was sort of under the radar. It was added at the very last minute in Toronto and not it quite It got done. buried. It didn't build it really, a lot of buzz. It really didn't, and now it's, it's already come out to market. Um, the, she is extraordinary in the movie. She's playing Marie Colvin, who is this war journalist who died in 2013 in Syria, and, uh, and the way in which she acts in this movie is uh, talking to her about it. I mean, she's an incredibly well-spoken, poised British actress, you know. But the, She was in Hostiles uh, last year as well in a very different role. Yeah, she's always different. But the thing is, what she did here is pretty remarkable because Matt Heineman, who directed it, he's a documentary filmmaker, and he, he filmed her in these war zones uh, with Syrian refugees. So they shot scenes that were supposed to be Homs in Syria, in Jordan, but with Syrian refugees where she would interact with them and and interview them as a journalist about their experiences. So you were witnessing her actually kind of being a journalist with real people on camera. And so there's a degree of authenticity. I only heard about this later, that it's fascinating. She was... So in the role, she wasn't even sure she could finish the part because the emotions were so real. Well, there was a moment there that gave me the chills, I have to say. They're digging up a mass grave, and everybody's waiting, and all these women uh, in Syria with the black um, things that cover them all. The shawls. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's this extraordinary moment where, where this whale goes up because they've dug up these bodies. Yeah, and those are people who have actually lost people in their families. 
And so, you know, the, it's one thing to do something like that and it doesn't work. I think the best parts of the film are seeing um, the way that she works through these scenes. It's not just like a white guilt kind of a thing. Like, this woman destroyed herself many times over, even before she died out there. She had PTS, yeah, for she, sure. And, and so she, she was telling me how she would, she used a dancer friend's advice to learn how to mimic the kind of the jittery motions that, that Colvin had because she always felt like she was still kind of unsafe and, and her hands would shake so she would hold straws between her fingers to make her fingers shake. I mean, this kind of material, you know, it can be showboaty and, and, and over the top if it's done by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, but she's so in control of the material that she kind of transcends the limitations of what this movie is and uh, and turns it into a really remarkable kind of introduction to what this journalist accomplished. Well, so far, it's not really in the conversation, and we'll see how many people go to see it this this weekend. But I agree with you, Eric. It's an extraordinary performance. It's a performance. surprise. It's a surprise. Um, I, was, I was not prepared for, it, for well, that the, much. Well, the it. other person that we had at the... We had Natalie Portman last night is going and supporting, so she's not going for Best Actress. We had uh, Charlize Theron, who's very good in Tully. Again, a question of whether people have gone... Uh, to see the movie or will be driven to see this extraordinary performance as a mother, uh, in this case, uh, with postpartum depression. I just want to point out that uh, we both got a couple shout-outs from our honorees last night, but you got the best one from Charlize Theron. She, she kind of ended her speech talking about you, and uh, she knows what she's doing. I know, I'm, I know, I'm sure it was sincere on some level. <laughs> But this woman has been through this a lot. And she knows I mean, that movie was not a huge commercial hit. She's got to remind people that they love her and that she played this, you know, pregnant, you know, this woman who recently gave birth. We and she gained ever. 50 pounds, yeah. which is, if she it had been Christian people. Bale, it would be. Here's the thing. That, you know, Vice is coming up and, and you know, he gained weight. Viggo Mortensen gained weight. It's a, it's a thing. Uh, she should be rewarded. But also she was robbed for uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Totally robbed. And hopefully she gets more chances to play that character at some point. Although I have to say. That's going to be later. He, there, he announced his other movie. There's a lot of amazing physical transformations I'd like to be talking about more. I mean, Eva Melander in Border. Go for it. We Tell talked you, you about talk that to her. movie. Um, you know, that is like really bizarre, kind of wacky, sexual fairy tale. By the um, way, I talked to some Academy members last night and today um, at another event, and sh- uh, they're loving that movie. It's, it's just like a very surprising movie to people because it, it starts out, it's so strange, and it keeps going in new directions. But it's basically about a, a woman who seems on the surface to be kind of ugly and you know physically deformed, like a kind of Quasimodo-esque element to her physicality. Uh, and and then she re- she kind of comes to terms with that, figures out the story. And she but it's does, also about uh, re- really strange uh, gender uh, confusion. But I mean, she doesn't look anything like this person. She's she's this very good looking, blonde haired, blue eyed woman in her forties who's only acted in Swedish films her whole life. So we don't really know her here. She's done a lot of TV and stage work. And, uh, and her counterpart was a perfectly good looking guy. I yeah, saw them in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. She gained. 40 pounds for this role, which is already nuts because she built up her muscle mass in tandem with eating a bunch. But in addition to that, she's completely covered in eight or nine prosthetics, which took four hours a day. Every scene you see her in 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 the movie, and she's in basically every scene, she has been in a makeup chair for four hours. She's acting 10 hours a day, and then another hour to get it all off. And again, I mean, going back to the Roz Pike conversation, that's not enough to make a performance work, but then you watch the performance and she 
it's totally, I was not thinking when I watched this film, look at all those prosthetics, you know, this person looks really tired. Not at I mean, all. She's in the role. It wasn't distracting at all. And by the way, I would argue another one with a huge transformation. Spoiler alert, we keep getting into trouble for spoilers, is, is the uh, Tilda Swinton thing where I was distracted by that. I really was. But then I found out a lot of people, she's playing a man. A lot of people saw this movie and didn't know. Yeah. Whereas when I first saw it, I didn't know either, but I knew it. I knew it beforehand and... um I knew it I immediately. I didn't buy it, but I but I still appreciated it. In a, I did not. I, but it's a totally different kind of a thing. It's not. I think there's a meta element there where it's a, the commentary on gender and your own ability to recognize her there is part of that experience. Whereas the Melander thing is is a more sophisticated kind of a you know bearing yourself in a character thing. Well, I do think that both of those are going to be nominated for hair and makeup. That's right. the thing. That would be great that, to see. That is what, uh, and, and for some reason, the Scandinavians do well with hair and makeup. Remember yeah. a man called Ova and their other they examples. Like playing around with things in the woods, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like sticking things on their faces. But we haven't even talked about Olivia Coleman and how she stands at the center of this race, right? I mean, I'm betting that she's going to win Best Actress. And the reason I'm betting that is because I think that the critics will over and over and over, over the course of, of the next few months, reward her. And, yeah, I mean, no matter how many times I, I vote for, say, Evan Melander in the New York Film Critics Circle, I don't... I mean, it, it, a lot of people just won't know who that is, or even if we if, if we talk about it and message it, it's like, it's, it's a tough one to beat when the Coleman narrative was, has been so strong, so out of the gate. And she is... Really She's good. amazing. I'm She's okay amazing. With that. I mean, no, they're all amazing. The three women in that movie are amazing. But she, they did. Fox Searchlight did decide to go for Best Actress, which I think was the right call, and put the two uh, former Oscar winners, Oscar, the two Oscar winners in the uh, supporting category, uh, Emma Stone and, and Rachel Weisz. But Olivia Coleman makes you care about this crazy queen. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. Yeah, I mean, The Favorite is a movie that I can't wait for more people to see and talk about because it's had so many different stages in terms of its response. You know, it's like it went to Venice and people were pretty crazy for it. It went to Telluride, it played like pretty well, and then it was like over the top at New York Film Festival. But then you talk to certain people who were kind of like baffled by it because it's Yorgos freaking Lanthimos and that's the effect he has. So is that good or bad? I, I just don't know. That's a true thing. I've talked to people who, who, who he, he's wicked. But that's what I love about him. I mean, if it was a foreign film, if he if he did this as a, in, in Greece, you know, where he used to work, I wonder if it would be like the leading contender in that category. You'd have to he wouldn't Rome have the budget. It. He wouldn't have the right. actors. It wouldn't be. He's moved. What's fascinating about Yorgos Lanthimos is that he has moved more and more into the mainstream, if you like. But at the same time, this is by far his most accessible film yeah, today. Well, we live in weird times. But <laughs> it's still weird. And that's what's fun about it. And so is Border. And I think those are th- reasons for these movies to pop, reasons for these movies to be must-sees. Right. Well, but Just we, as Suspiria played and opened better than you uh, would yeah, expect, whack, wacky given stuff. how bad the reviews <laughs> were. Wacky stuff that is off the wall, that's trying things. Obviously, it works. It, it, like, it, sorry it, to bother you, but worked. But then... Why are we still calling Starsborn such a front runner in so many ways? It's that's a front not... runner now. Here's the deal: that movie could become too successful, too mainstream. No, in some ways, it don't. It's going to go past two hundred million. It's 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 going to be. Um, it's very popular. Uh, it's it's a popular hit, but 
I will tell you this. The people in the Academy recognize that Bradley Cooper uh, did an amazing job as a co-writer, as a director, as, you know, really the, the vision behind it. And he got, he knew that Lady Gaga could do what she did. Um, they will give him credit for this. They need to give Lady Gaga credit. I really, I, so, I think he's fine. I think the movie's okay. But Lady Gaga is really good in that movie. I, I feel like that's So she's in the best about. actress race, too. She's getting talked about. People think she's the front runner. I'm being um, uh, more proactive about Olivia Coleman because I think she could win. Right. Well, I mean, what Olivia Coleman is doing, I mean, she's sort of underappreciated. There's that narrative. It's well, she's being discovered as, as an American right. uh, Hollywood actress. As a, I mean, not, she's, she's a British actress who's well-known in Britain, and she's being discovered in America. Right. And you got that BAFTA contingency, which will support And she's her. coming up in The Queen. I right. mean, in The Crown. The Crown, right, exactly. So that, that'll be sort of a, a sweet spot, kind of a moment, kind of like when McConaughey was in Dallas Buyers Club and then True Detective came out or something like that. It's like there's this sort of groundswell. Well, there's support. always a narrative. You have to have a narrative. And sometimes what happens with something like um, Rosamund Pike in a private war is that the narrative doesn't have a chance to take off. We should talk about Vox Lux, though, because I thought supporting. it was... Yeah, for supporting actress, because Natalie Portman, you know, it was interesting. Her speech was mostly about that movie, which I would say a lot of people haven't seen yet. Played at Toronto, played at Venice, hasn't come out yet. It's coming out in December. Weird movie divides the hell out of people more that's than that's another border, movie even. that pops. Yeah. That's the argument you I would make. You come out of it talking about it's, it. It's not something you ignore, um, and you can argue about it and debate it. I mean, I have uh, I liked some of it, didn't like other aspects of it. She's amazing, um, but it's She's so it's unlikable. A, it's a movie, movie. you can't <laughs> ignore. It, it's, it's a very unusual movie. Just this like wild, self-absorbed pop star. I mean, it's like the opposite of stars. Born. You know what that person would actually be like, having gone through the system and just like having. So it's much where she would be ten years later. Yeah, that's true too. She, she's a mother and all this kind of stuff. But I think you know Portman, who's won before, knows how to work this scene. It's interesting to have her in supporting, even though you know she is sort of the face of the movie and all the marketing materials. And I wonder how people are going to wrestle with that to some degree because you know she could be. Uh, really well positioned to to kind of be a kind of hold on to that category in the weeks ahead, don't you think? I mean, it's uh, it's really good for a movie that's that's that experimental and out there to have a serious Oscar contender, and for a company like Neon, you know, which of course was like behind that. I Tanya, so they know what they're doing. And they have Border too. They have Border that's too. true. So it's an interesting season in that respect. I, I'm sort of wondering what happened to Tony Collette in Hereditary. They so haven't. Like, remember, uh, it may seem like we've been talking about this stuff for a while uh, because we started at the festivals, but the season is still playing out. Green Book is going to be a huge contender um, coming up. Uh, we haven't seen if Beale Street could talk open yet. And, yeah, what and will Kiki Lane's uh, kind of breakout story do to all of this stuff? I don't think much, but um, the but movie so good. is going to be uh, rewarded by the critics, I think. Yeah, I mean, well, but the problem is with all this stuff is just how insanely competitive this season is. I mean, only one movie can win. And I guess what's kind of exciting for somebody who cares about more than just consensus and what wins Best Picture is maybe all these different critics groups are going to award different movies or it's going to be different Well, do you tell me. What is New York going to do? Well, I feel are like... Are they going to go for Ethan Hawke in First Reformed? Well, that's the thing. I think First Reformed has an insane amount of love behind it. So whether it's Hawke or Schrader or Picture... You're going to hear about that movie a good amount. What about at Eternity's Gate well, and Willem Dafoe? I, maybe, maybe Dafoe. Maybe Dafoe. 
But again, I mean, it's just there's so many different ways people are looking at movies, and all it takes is, you know, some contingency supporting this person and that person, and then a third person rises up. So it's kind of exciting because it's hard to tell, but it's also a little daunting because what you don't want is somebody who a lot of us are kind of just nonplussed about or, or find less adventurous to win by virtue of all these other so ones kind of So it's a apart. question of what the consensus title turns out to be. My guess is on the, this will only apply to, to directing and, and um, best film and, and best uh, actress and so forth would be the favorite. I have to assume that's the one. But there are so many actors you could go for. That's what I'm confused by, which actors you're going to do. Yeah, I do. You, I, do you I have go no for Viggo Mortensen in a mainstream movie, or do you go for the uh, art film that won't get attention otherwise, like First Reformed or At Eternity's Gate? I mean, I think all of those movies you mentioned are going to have people will throw their support behind those actors, and where the groundswell of support comes from is it's just really hard to tell. I mean, it probably won't be Bradley Cooper or something like no, that. No, they won't do I a Star is Born. They might not even do Green Book. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, some people don't like it. There's different generations of, of critics groups and members of the groups. I mean, look, New York Film Critics Circle is now 46 people. If everybody votes and you look at those lists of names, there's a lot of different sensibilities coming together all at once. So it's it's just, you know, you think the midterms are a little unpredictable. Like you can't do a poll. And L.A. is anything. a lot like that, too. Yeah, so it's really, and there's, there's sometimes a lot of international stuff can sneak in there, too. You know, so... I mean, there's so many different permutations when you really get down to it, and this is one of the more competitive years I can remember in that respect, especially with the Netflix movies coming up and a couple of things left to screen. What about Leave No Trace, Deborah Granick's movie with Ben Foster and Thomas and Mackenzie? I think the thing about Leave No Trace is that, you know, unlike First Reformed, I mean, they both opened earlier in the year, but First Reformed became an issue-driven movie. People were talking about, what does this movie mean? What is it really about? And also, it's like Paul Schrader's return to form, and there were, there were so many things that were being discussed there. Again, it's a narrative. And I think with Leave No Trace, people respected it. It was well-reviewed. It was it one of the best-reviewed movies of the year at 100% have, on Rotten but Tomatoes. But remember, those numbers only tell you part of the story. Did it have a long-lasting impact? With it was the highest-grossing drama of the year, indie drama. But how do we... What do we exceeded only recently by the wife but I the wife I need to watch the wife that screener's on my counter from when I get home but it sounds like you're arguing against um, one of the best reviewed movies of the year that's well, my question why don't the New York film be, critics want to support that movie but this is a what you're looking at is almost like a binary thing like good review bad review it's not like that it's what, what do people love what do they keep coming back to and talking to a lot of rank and file critics who review movies every week Every other week, maybe, they give something a pretty good review. And sometimes that leads to meta scores and Rotten Tomato scores that are really high. And you see, well, everybody loves this consensus that they love it. But what are they still talking about weeks later or months later? You know, so for something like First Performed, people are wrestling with this movie. They can't wait to see it again. I mean, there's, it, we talk about The Favorite or Border. I mean, these are movies that have, like, really sophisticated ideas that are trying things that are surprising. I think the, the challenge that the Deborah Granick film has is that as good as it is, it's a straight drama, and it's less... It, it doesn't impact people in quite the same way, or at least certainly it's not a, It's a real tearjerker. It's a father-daughter story. It's a survival story. It's a PSD story. Uh, PT... Listen to me. <laughs> P- 
PTS story. And it's it's extremely moving and extremely well written and directed and acted. I mean, there there is nothing wrong with it. The movie that I would want would like to see get a little bit more support and certainly has come out at the right time of year, but is maybe facing a little too much of a competitive field is Can You Ever Forgive Me? I think Meryl Heller is an amazing filmmaker who really stepped up her game here and was uh, did something with material that you know the trailer wasn't great, the story, the premise didn't, was hard to tell. Melissa McCarthy had a, a serious dud like a week before this movie <laughs> premiered, so it was sort of like. You know, they just didn't. It didn't look promising, and it's so great. I can't wait to watch. I'd that like movie to see again. Melissa McCarthy get into the Best Actress race. I think it's extraordinary. How she get Best Performance? There's a lot. That and I'd like there. to see Mariel Heller. Uh, if you were asking me, as a betting person, is there a woman director who could get into the top five today? I would say no. Which is frustrating. Because you, at, at the New York Film Critics and other groups, would need to, uh, you would need to say that Deborah Granick had directed one of the best films of the year, or Mariel Heller had directed one of the best films of the year. And if you don't, and you say it's Yorgos Lanthimos and instead, which is ter- totally valid, it won't happen. I mean, you got to think this is a similar kind of a conversation that happened at Cannes this year with the jury all these women on the jury in a conversation about, well, could we finally see a woman win the palm for the second time? And that happened when uh, Jane Campion was the head of the jury, too. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, what's the movie that people actually feel strongest about? And you end up kind of stuck because there's one thing that you want to happen and there's another thing that happens because of just how you feel about certain things. And that's a challenge season. Yeah, I just think um, obviously sometimes these movies as you say, fire on multiple cylinders and have extraordinary depth, extraordinary craft, and they pop. And when it's a smaller indie Talking Heads movie, although I will say this, Leave No Trace is not a Talking Heads movie. It's a it's an action movie in it's a weird not way. An action movie. No, they're in the woods. There's a lot of it's silence. Maybe a thriller on some level. There's suspense to it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I can't call it a Talking Heads movie. I'm, I'm thinking about revisiting it. I, I revisit a lot of stuff at this time of year, but but I, I just I'm, you know, you can only think about so many things at once, and we have so much to dig through, and it's just it's just going to be a real challenge, especially in the weeks ahead. And next week, um, we will reconvene to talk about AFI Fest, which is going to give us three more movies. All right, so we, we're finally uh, on the basis of sex, Mary Queen of Scots, and this uh, Sandra Bullock Netflix thriller. Bird Box. <laughs> what is it? They're calling it a quiet place for with, with uh, sight instead of sound or something like that. And so I will call you from New York next week and we can talk more about LA stuff. Lovely to have you in town, Eric. Good to see you.